brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go again, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And the darkest reality we face around here is that there are powerful networks in the shadows that expand their influence through the entrapment and sexual blackmail of politicians and the billionaire elite. And the truth is, the darker the taboo, the greater the control. So we see these networks utilize prostitution, drug use, and sadly, child trafficking to catch people at their worst. There's no telling just how much of the system has been captured by these types of tactics. But if the silence from mainstream media, law enforcement, or the Justice Department is any indication, it's a lot. Well, before there was Jeffrey Epstein, there was Craig Spence, and today's returning guest Nick Bryant is a dedicated journalist best known for his work in exposing these networks, primarily with his brilliant book, The Franklin Scandal. And while many people have heard of Jeffrey Epstein's Little Black Book, few people know that getting it published back in 2012 is another notch on Nick's belt. Now, frustrated with the stonewalling of the Epstein story and the lack of investigation into the larger network, Nick is back in action, spearheading a campaign to demand more and hoping to inspire the people to back him up. He's here to talk about his own research into the situation and encourage the listeners to sign his petition at change.org, demanding more from the system and justice for the victims of the Epstein Network. You can find a link to that petition in the show notes, and I know you people can listen and type at the same time. But here he is, the child trafficking ring researcher and dedicated journalist for justice, Nick Bryant. Welcome back to the higher side. It's good to be with you, Greg. Yes, man. Thank you for doing this. I know so many people hold you in high regard for your work on the Franklin scandal, me as well. And as brave as that was, it's not surprising to see you called into action on the Epstein Network as well. Before we really dive into that work, it would seem a little weird to not at least mention the current situation we're recording this in. Most of the country's bars and restaurants are closed. Most of us are in a self-quarantine situation and gatherings of any sizable number are banned. I know you've talked about a desire to see people demanding justice in the streets over this Epstein case, and clearly that can't happen right now. How are you assessing this? Are you at all concerned over the level of control exerted so suddenly? 
Well, when people are in fear, they're easy to manipulate and they're dangerous. So they can easily have a mob mentality. And the problem that I'm having is I'm receiving a lot of conflicting information about the coronavirus and the spread of the coronavirus and its lethality. So, I mean, the coronavirus is a reality and it's putting people in the hospital and it's killing people that are elderly, immunocompromised, people with certain heart conditions. So that is a reality. But these other measures, I just don't know. I mean, a friend of mine is a medical doctor, and I was talking to her, and she said that it would be much more reasonable if people that were high risk, elderly people, immunocompromised people, people with certain health conditions, just stay home. And also people that are feeling sick, and we don't know whether or not they've got the coronavirus, should stay home. I don't know how well that would work, but it seems to me that that would have been like the first step instead of like a complete lockdown of everything. Yes. So I'm a little disappointed that our government hasn't chosen that as a first step to see if it works prior to this. And as I said, I'm receiving a lot of conflicting information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Me as well. And I just get a little concerned over this seeming like a somewhat low bar for instituting these type of quarantine protocols. I mean, it doesn't seem to have that lethal of a, of a death rate from the numbers I've seen, but we had Ebola, we had swine flu, bird flu. We never saw any measures like this put in place. And so I wonder now that this is a new standard, is this going to be instituted more often? I mean, 9-11 happened decades ago and I still can't wear shoes on an airplane and the Patriot Act keeps getting uh, renewed. So I just wonder when sometimes these things happen, when do they go away? I mean, when we're all inside, when is a virus gone? Just when we're told it's gone? Well, you talked about the swine flu. The swine ki flu killed uh, 5 million people. So, I mean, I think we're dealing with something that isn't as lethal as the swine flu. I mean, given that the swine flu killed 5 million people. So I just don't know. But it is frightening when you see so many Americans being so obsequious to the government. I wish that more people were asking more questions. Donald Trump was very cavalier about the coronavirus and said that it wasn't a problem. And then all of a sudden, here we are, you know, practically a martial law. So right. <laughs> there's been like a schizophrenia from the Trump administration. And unfortunately, as we see, the Democrats and the Republicans are willing to follow the leader in cases like this, where there's a calamity. So at this point, I just don't know what to think, Craig. I agree. It's really too early to say. I know you're a very meticulous researcher and you don't want to misspeak or speculate, but it's hard not to just say something at the top of this show because it is just strange times. Okay, so I've been in contact with a couple of scientists and 
One told me that the coronavirus is very, very contagious and lethal, although it's, I think we're at the death rate is 2.4%. The other one told me that the mechanisms that are in place now are overkill and that more people are going to die because they've lost everything. You know, if this keeps up without any kind of economic relief packages, there's going to be a lot of people out there that are going to lose everything. And he said that that would probably be more lethal than the coronavirus. So those are the two polarities that I'm looking at with this. Mm -hmm. Well, I do appreciate you sharing what you've heard, even at this early stage. And it has certainly had an effect on the Epstein coverage. There were a lot of memes circulating that were keeping the story alive. And once coronavirus dominated the news cycle, they all kind of went away. Who knows what else we're missing? But the demand for more journalism on the Epstein network was certainly squashed, even though it was kind of fizzling already. Well, it was fizzling. I started a petition and it was starting to fizzle. And last week I was supposed to speak at an international conference, the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation in San Francisco. I had a very good Jeffrey Epstein presentation. And after my presentation, I was going to solicit help in attempting to get a reasonable Jeffrey Epstein investigation off the ground, but that conference got canceled. So it's been very difficult to get people to turn their heads towards Jeffrey Epstein when they think that there's a lethal pandemic going on. So it has, and I'm hoping that we can get back to normal relatively soon, whatever that is. So I can continue to pursue the injustices involved in the Epstein case. Right. And I definitely had a note down about that conference presentation. It had the title Politically Connected Organized Abuse, Understanding Perpetrator Dynamics. And I'm sure that will be a presentation that comes to light in some time. But I am curious what elements you were going to highlight there or what people might not understand about these perpetrator dynamics. Well, the thing is, with this presentation, I was going to focus a lot on blackmail, where people are missing the boat when it comes to blackmail. And I wrote the Franklin Scandal, which was about a pedophile network that flew children from coast to coast and deployed blackmail. Much like Epstein, the Franklin network was much bigger than Epstein's. And I think it was even darker than Epstein's, if you can imagine that. They were producing child pornography also. Whereas anecdotes of Jeffrey Epstein producing child pornography have not surfaced at this point. But the thing is, when you blackmail powerful people, and I did get the black book in 2012. I wasn't able to get it on the internet till 2015 when Gawker published it. And the house manager, Epstein's house manager, circled people who were, quote unquote, potentially material witnesses. If you can read through that, and there's a lot of people that are circled that are very powerful and very rich, including our current president. So Epstein by himself was a college dropout from basically a blue-collar background in Coney Island. There's no way that Jeffrey Epstein 
could blackmail people. And there's been multiple articles about his hidden cameras. The New York Times has had articles. Vanity Fair has had articles. CBS had articles. And Epstein's setup was much like Spence's setup, at least at his New York home, with multiple monitors, according to one of the victims. So Epstein by himself could not have blackmailed these people. He had to have an organization behind him, an entity behind him, that would tell the people that were blackmailed, you know, you cannot touch Jeffrey Epstein, because if you do, there's going to be some very serious ramifications. So that is the only way that Jeffrey Epstein could have blackmailed the rich and the powerful. And of course, Acosta, the former labor secretary, Alexander Acosta, and prior to that, the former U.S. attorney for Southern Florida who gave Epstein a sweetheart deal in 2008, where Epstein served 13 months in a county jail. And actually, the Department of Justice had a list of 32 underage victims at that point. So that was very much a sweetheart deal. And Acosta and the U.S. Attorney's Office didn't even tell the victims that Epstein had been sentenced, which is against the law. I mean, there's the Crime Victims Act, and victims have to be notified about a perpetrator's sentence. What they did is they sealed everything. And then it was eventually unsealed by a number of lawsuits being launched at him. But Acosta, when he was being interviewed for the labor secretary, he was asked, you know, what happened with Jeffrey Epstein? And he was told, according to Vicki Ward, who published a very good article on Daily Beast, and she's a very knowledgeable reporter, she said, Acosta said that he was told Epstein was intelligence and that he was above his pay grade. So he needed to back off in the uh, prosecution of Jeffrey Epstein. And I also acquired emails between one of Epstein's attorneys and the assistant U.S. attorney where they're lobbying these emails back and forth, and they're talking about how they can give Jeffrey Epstein the most lenient deal possible. And the assistant U.S. attorney even suggests a magistrate that would be compatible with what they're doing. So there's just so much corruption here. I truly believe that Epstein was part of intelligence. Now, when you get into intelligence, it's difficult to know. I mean, I believe that there's a very dark pocket of people in the FBI. I believe that there's a very dark pocket of people in the CIA. And I also believe that there's a dark pocket of people in the NSA, and especially with the CIA. So I have no doubts that Epstein, like Craig Spence in the Franklin scandal, was the point man for a blackmail operation and that he was protected. What happened with Craig Spence is very similar to what happened with Jeffrey Epstein. The Washington Times started reporting on Spence and they did a really thorough job. They talked about his house being wired for audiovisual blackmail. And they also talked about his connections to the CIA. And he ultimately ended up killing himself in Boston at the Ritz-Carlton. Jeffrey Epstein was at the Metropolitan Correctional Center, which is a huge federal jail in the middle of Manhattan. And his surroundings weren't as glitzy as Spence's surroundings when he killed himself or apparently killed himself. But I think that there was 
way too much press focused on Epstein for him to still be viable and kept alive. And that is a definite great breakdown. I have heard you say in previous interviews that when it comes to the Franklin scandal, you went about as far as a journalist can go and live. And I'm curious how you determine where that line is. Were there deeper levels that you didn't feel comfortable putting in the book or talking about? And is there a similar line not to be crossed in this Epstein journalism you're doing? Well, I think the biggest thing in this type of investigation, I was told very early on by someone who I value his opinion. He said, don't blackmail any of these people or you will get killed and make sure that there's duplicates of all your information. As for me, I went very deep into the Franklin network and my life was threatened. I was followed. I had very strange phone calls, but I kept going. I just decided that the Franklin trafficking network and its cover-up was just so evil that I had to be a mensch and really do what I could. And with the Epstein investigation, my Epstein investigation, I have not been threatened. So I know who some of the perps are, some of the big time perps. I mean, I can't prove it, but I know who some of them are. And again, I think trying to blackmail them would be very deleterious to me. (laughs) Right, right. And it seems like they have their hands a little more full this time than they might have with the Franklin scandal. There's a lot of eyes on this thing, even if some of them aren't going to the depth that you're going, of course, but they're uh, kind of battening down the hatches, it seems, maybe lawyering up in some cases. Well, what's kind of interesting is Alfredo Gomez, Epstein's house manager, circled a number of names and in the black book in the black book that were quote unquote material witnesses and he circled the name of bill richardson he circled the name of another new mexico governor he circled the name of alan dershowitz and all three of those guys have been named as perps so it's kind of interesting George Mitchell's name has come out, the former Democratic senator from Maine, and his name had come up previously. The the thing about it is, there's a lot of victims out there with Epstein. With Franklin, the FBI came in and got really heavy with all the victims, and then some of them died, and some of their siblings died under mysterious circumstances, and They were able to contain it. But we're not seeing that from the FBI in this case. These girls have lawyered up, and they've lawyered up with very astute lawyers, David Boyes being one of them. And consequently, at this point, I think if you got the victims to really talk, they could give you the names of a lot of the perps. And there's so many perps involved in this, and they're very high-ranking. One is a prime minister. A couple are presidents of other countries. 
And then I think that this goes very, very high up into our government. And this is what's kind of mind boggling. So the media goes big time into Jeffrey Epstein. My name even gets mentioned. Vanity Fair even writes an article about me. I mean, they won't give me a writing gig, but they'll write an article about me, which was actually laudatory. And the New York Times, without even consulting me, put my name in the paper, talking about that I was the guy that put the black book on the internet. And I was the guy that put the black book on the internet. But you would think that they would come to me and other than Vanity Fair and ask me what I thought about this or do I want to write about it? But <laughs> no one did. And that was kind of shocking to me. Right, right. And I was going to back up to that little black book a bit. I mean, that's a huge journalistic service to the world, getting it out there. And kudos to Gawker, of all places, for publishing it. I'm curious if that might be an underlying reason they're not around anymore is that type of stuff. But can you tell us a little bit more about how you got the little black book and how you got it out to the world? And are there names that you've seen in it that you think should be in the conversation that really just haven't drawn the attention that you think they would? So a source gave me the black book in 2012. I can't really get into the particulars of it. Of course. The source did give me the black book in 2012. It was in Florida. And I took the black book up to New York and I pitched it to many different magazines. And I had pitched Franklin to them. And I could see that there was cognitive dissonance in their eyes. They were thinking, well, this is a horrible story where all these kids have been destroyed with impunity. I need to do something about this. Or I can say that Nick Bryant is crazy and I don't have to do anything about it. So they ended their cognitive dissonance by defaulting to Nick Bryant is crazy. And I went back to them and I pitched them Epstein in 2012. But this time I had the black book and I had a bunch of other documents. And not one of them would touch this. Now, if the media had gotten behind me in 2012, just think of all the girls that could have been saved from molestation. Because Jeffrey Epstein molested a lot of girls from 2012 to the time he died last year. And it's really tragic. And now what we saw with the media and Jeffrey Epstein was a certain salaciousness. The Epstein story had a salaciousness that was seductive. Okay, now Epstein's dead. I mean, his network is still out there. Those powerful perps are still out there. Those procurers are still out there. Ghislaine Maxwell, she was marching lockstep and barrel with Jeffrey Epstein concerning all of this. And she hasn't been indicted. I just find it mind-boggling. No one in the media is calling for Maxwell's head. And the rest of those procurers, the New York Times wrote an August 29th 2019 article, or it was August 28th, and named six of Epstein's procurers. I mean, how difficult would it have been for law enforcement to round up those six procurers? It would have been quite easy. I mean, it's kind of like the New York Times naming six of John Gotti's associates and 
delineating how they're involved in John Gotti's criminal enterprise, but the Justice Department doesn't go after him. It's very analogous to that. So again, the media is really, really shortchanging these girls and the victims because this isn't about justice now. I haven't seen any mainstream outlet scream for justice for these girls. Justice would be the procurers getting indicted, the perps getting indicted, and all of them going to jail. I mean, that is what justice would be. People say, well, they're too powerful. I mean, nobody's too powerful. The United States government is the most powerful government in the world. If it wanted to indict someone, it could indict someone. Richard Nixon was booted out of office when he was president of the United States. The narrative of Watergate is a little different than what people believe, but nonetheless, he was the most powerful man in the world at that point, and he was booted out of office. So I feel like it's just complete bullshit that people are backing away from this because the perps are too powerful. Again, it is the mainstream media showing that it's run by ethical eunuchs and that these ethical eunuchs are stopping the investigation right now. It's very sad to me. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. And you're right about the coverage, mainly focusing on Epstein himself and his death, which is like a way to make it look like, well, we're not ignoring the story, but you're clearly not focusing on the larger network, a further investigation. And like you say, the victims, it's nice to hear that some of these victims have better legal resources now than the ones of the Franklin scandal. And there is no shortage of victims. Like you say, there's a couple dozen at this point. I believe there's been about 35 molestation lawsuits settled with Epstein. Right on. Yeah, I had actually um, in an old Gawker article, 35 female minors whom federal prosecutors believed he sexually abused in that court case. And then he has reportedly settled lawsuits from more than 30 Jane Doe victims since 2008. So, you know, obviously there could be even more that we don't know about. Clearly there's going to be, but how many of these victims have you spoken with personally? When I first got the black book, I spoke with some. I was in Florida and I had a long list of Florida victims and I called them and I spoke to some of them. They were very frightened at that point. This is 2012, so most of them were very, very frightened. Some of them had settled lawsuits with Epstein at that point, but the ones that I talked to were very frightened. And I financed myself in these investigations. By the time I'd gotten the Black Book and by the time I started talking to victims, I just couldn't stay in Florida any longer. But I felt that I had enough evidence, certainly at that point, to take it back to a New York magazine or a mainstream magazine and get an assignment. As I said before, none of them commissioned an article about Jeffrey Epstein, even though I had his black book and the names of and numbers of a lot of perps and the names of a hundred victims. I just find it mind boggling. And as I said before, if one magazine had gotten behind me in 2012, all those girls that were raped between 2012 and 2019, they didn't have to be. So 
that makes me very, very sad. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Well, it's also sad that we set such a terrible precedent in the Franklin scandal where the kids who did come forward were, as you say, leaned on heavily. There were tragedies unexpectedly in their families. And in at least one case, I think two who wouldn't recant their charges, they were actually hit with perjury. And I think the young lady spent even a couple years in solitary just to really drive home that they're not to be messed with. That network was operational for about 10 years, and it was a big network. The Franklin Network was getting kids out of Boys Town and other institutions, and it was also getting kids out of the foster care system, and it was getting kids that had fallen through the cracks, generally lower socioeconomic kids from dysfunctional families. And the FBI came in and leaned on everybody. I mean, they leaned on the perps, too. There was a perp, Alan Barry, was a multimillionaire. He was thinking about cooperating. He saw that the cover-up, the Nebraska Senate hired an investigator named Gary Caridori, and he was a whirlwind. He was an amazing investigator. And some of these perps saw that Gary Caridori was uncovering the Franklin Network as fast as the feds could cover it up. And he left a list of like 60 victims. And that's the list that I used to find victims for the book. Two of the victims, Paul Benassi and Alicia Owen, they would not recant their abuse. Paul wouldn't recant his abuse to the state grand jury. And he was indicted on three counts and looking at 60 years and Alicia wouldn't recant her testimony to the prior testimony to the state grand jury. And she was indicted on eight counts of perjury. She was looking at 160 years. And then Alicia, there were eight indictments against Alicia by the federal grand jury. So she was looking at like 300 years. I mean, and she still wouldn't recant her accounts of abuse. And we're talking about a kid who was indicted when she was 21 years old. She was sentenced between nine and 15 years in prison. And her trial, I get into her trial a lot in the Franklin scandal, and I show all the chicanery in her trial. But she was, yes, given a nine to 15 year sentence, and she had to do two years in solitary. Douglas County and the state of Nebraska tried to destroy her. Because that generally is what happens when people are in solitary as they start losing it. But Alicia, she was a strong girl who became a strong woman and she just wouldn't fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so sad if you were in that situation and to come out, you want to look at examples of previous cases and you look at the Franklin scandal and you're not getting a lot of inspiration for wanting to take that risk. But do we know where the Epstein network was picking up its victims? Are these the same sort of disenfranchised youth? Yes. The majority of the Epstein victims, I don't think Epstein was plundering institutions the way King was plundering institutions. Larry King was one of the two perps along with Craig Spence who operated the network. I think that Epstein had a lot of recruiters out there. We know of about eight or nine, the New York Times mentioned six, that were on the lookout for girls. They came from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. 
and they were also from dysfunctional families. And those are the girls that they preyed on. Yeah, it makes me curious when you hear like a story like the Nexium thing, that was all these female recruiters going out and finding these girls that wanted to be models or actresses. So they get brought into this cult-like atmosphere. And then we have in the Epstein situation, a guy like Les Wexner. I mean, if there's girls that are want to be models and, and actresses in the same sense, you got the Ghislaine Maxwell's out there telling them, hey, we can make your dreams come true, stuff like that. We can put you in the room with powerful people. Were they sold lies similar to that, as far as you can tell? I think a lot of them were, and a lot of them were, the money was very enticing, although it wasn't much. But Ghislaine Maxwell is on record as talking about these girls, quote, they're nothing, these girls. So she just looked at these girls as like non-entities to exploit, which, I mean, I guess pedophiles are that way or a lot of pedophiles are that way, where they just look at their victims as nothing. I mean, as something to exploit. It's very strange to me how people get that twisted. I do not know how people get that twisted. But Maxwell and Epstein were definitely that twisted. Mm -hmm. That was going to be one of my questions for you, is these conversations are usually about the blackmail aspects, and it's pretty clear to see how that could be useful. And these names, they span politics, entertainment, news media, and apparently the scientific community to an extent in Epstein's case. But is this all just about blackmail and exerting influence over these people? I mean, I'm sure there's a little indulgence, but outside of that, is there other motivations that you've been able to peg for why networks like this would exist? The Franklin Network wasn't very lucrative. I mean. I believe that the perps got money for the kids. Actually, I kind of know that to be a fact. And I'm sure that Epstein paid these girls to service him, but I'm sure that he also paid these girls to service others. Right. But I think that the amount of money that was made by both the Franklin Network and the Epstein Network was really minimal compared to the blackmail intelligence that was gathered. We've got 100 senators and we've got 435 representatives. And one thing that I learned writing the Franklin scandal is nothing makes people stupid like sex, power, and money. Those three things, I mean, look at Bill Clinton with his problems with lust. I mean, he put his entire presidency on the line with Monica Lewinsky. So... When these young girls were dangled in front of people, something in their limbic system took over, and or maybe they were pedophiles already, you know, you know, they were just being provided for. But it's really, really important if you want power the way that these guys want power to blackmail people. And our House and Senate is filled with men that have a potent psychological alchemy of alpha male lust arrogance and it makes them incredibly stupid and open to being compromised as far as blackmail and compromise one of the examples that i use is larry craig he was the republican senator from idaho and he was in washington dc first as a representative 
and then as a senator for like 25 years. And I co-authored a book called Confessions of a DC Madam, where a guy who ran a gay escort service, Henry Benson, detailed the people that he interacted with. And Larry Craig was getting prostitutes from him, male prostitutes, throughout the 80s. Larry Craig was ultimately busted trying to pick someone up in a Minneapolis airport bathroom. Now, how hard would it be to compromise a guy like that? A guy that's paying money for making calls for gay escorts, trying to pick people up in bathrooms? It would be really easy to compromise Larry Craig. And Dennis Haster is another one that comes to mind. He was Speaker of the House for seven years, from 1999 to 2006, and he had a long history of pedophilia, of molesting little boys. And yet he was the third most, constitutionally, he was the third most powerful person in the country. And according to a FBI whistleblower, Hastert was at a house of ill repute, so it's tough to know whether he's being provided with little boys at that, that house, but it was, it was some kind of house of ill repute in Chicago. And the FBI knew about that because the whistleblower told the FBI first. So we have these politicians running around. Now, how does a guy like Larry Craig exist in Washington, D.C. for 25 years? I believe he had the worst record while he was in Washington, D.C. of voting against gay rights. So how does a guy like that last 25 years in Washington, D.C.? He's obviously protected. And I think he went out of his protective net when he tried to pick up someone in an airport bathroom in Minneapolis. I mean, that's my take on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And so with these networks, you compromise senators and politicians, all kinds of people. What are you getting? I mean, whose interests are being served with this blackmail, you don't compromise people unless you want them to do something or specifically want them to not pursue something else. Is there any kind of commonality? Can we look at all the politicians who have been compromised and look at particular industries or individuals that they seem to be working for? The military. Hmm. Right out of the gate, it's the military. If you look at the politicians that I know have been blackmailed, whether they be Republican or Democrat, it's always the military. But here's the thing about that. The politicians that I know that are compromised, they almost always vote with their constituency so they don't stick out. They're down with their constituency. But occasionally a marker has to be called in and then they will vote the way that they're told to. But for the vast majority of the time, they vote with their constituency. Mm -hmm. And you would assume that there's so many lines in the chain that they might not even know exactly who is pulling their strings because there's going to be a middleman who just comes and says, hey, man, you're voting no on this or yes on that. And they don't necessarily even know whose orders they're following. They just know that the people who have the dirt on them, they got to listen to. No, I think that's wrong. These guys know that an intelligence entity was behind Jeffrey Epstein and Craig Spence. Or else these politicians 
have access to thugs. Les Wexner definitely had connections to organized crime, the Genovese crime family. And most of these powerful guys have access to thugs, organized crime, murders. So they would have to know that, hey, you cannot touch Epstein, you cannot touch Spence because we are behind him. And if anything happens to them and we find that you are culpable, then you are going to have to pay the price because these guys cannot be offing these intelligence blackmail artists because then it would set a very bad precedent. People would just start offing blackmail artists. So I think that they're definitely lit up as far as who's compromising them and what they need to do. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about this because I am not in the camp that thinks pedophile networks are a thing that President Trump is trying to weed out, but it is an opinion that a decent segment of this audience might put stock in. And I do get criticism for disagreeing with that. But what are your thoughts? They're completely wrong. Here's the thing. And this will, I think, demonstrate unequivocally. William Barr was the attorney general who covered up the Franklin scandal under Bush one. And now he's the attorney general under Trump that's covering up Epstein's pedophile network. So if the QAnon people had a lick of sense that they would see that someone who covered up the Franklin trafficking network is also covering up the Epstein trafficking network. So Donald Trump isn't going after the pedophiles. I mean, it sickens me to hear that type of bullshit, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm glad you said so, because I feel the same way. And I do think William Barr is going to be exhibit A for making that case. And one thing that I'm seeing thrown around a lot on the internet is a long list of CEO resignations in the past few months from Disney to a lot of major companies and the suggestion is that these are people that are compromised in those networks. Do you know much about the compromised folks outside of the political sphere? Does it go into other industries? Definitely goes into other industries. I know some of the people that are in high finance are compromised. But when it comes to like Hollywood, that's not where my expertise is. My expertise is primarily in Washington, D.C. and also in New York City. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I wanted to also ask you a little bit more about Ghislaine Maxwell. Of course, we know she was Epstein's right-hand woman. And for a while, the news narrative was that she was on the run, but I don't think she's actually being pursued. Is there anything you can say regarding updates with where she is or when her passport was last used or... Or anything? Well, the thing about Ghislaine Maxwell is she is very affluent and she's used to spending money like it's profuse and bountiful. The financial footprint that Ghislaine Maxwell leaves would be I mean, the FBI wanted to find Ghislaine Maxwell. They could find her tomorrow. I'm really convinced of that. Because she's just too, the way that she spends money, it's too profuse they would be able to corner her very quickly. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know where she is and they don't seem to be looking. They don't seem to be looking because, I mean, all she's got to do is use a credit card and it's game over for her. 
And I can't imagine her not using credit cards. I can't imagine her being austere in any way. She doesn't strike me as a person that's going to be austere, regardless of what's happening in her life. She's used to living high on the hog. And this is kind of interesting because usually when you ask the Department of Justice or the FBI about ongoing cases, they will say, well, we can't comment on an ongoing case. And it's very interesting. They're commenting all the time on Prince Andrew, but they're not commenting on anybody in America that was part of this. So, I mean, that's another indication that there's a cover-up going on and it stinks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And I was also curious about the potential for a multi-generational component when it comes to Ghislaine Maxwell, because there's a lot of talk about her father, Robert Maxwell. Does it seem like he brought his daughter into this world of darkness? It's difficult to know that. I mean, Maxwell was certainly an ethical eunuch. I mean, he was a spy and he was also a white collar criminal. It's difficult to know with Glenn Maxwell, whether it's multi-generational or she's just twisted herself. Fair. And you mentioned Prince Andrew. Obviously, that interview was quite wild and probably didn't go the way he expected it to go. Do you have any indication of how involved he is or how deep this story goes with other members of the royal family? I don't know about other members of the royal family, but Prince Andrew's a slam dunk. I mean, he's absolutely guilty. And the thing about Prince Andrew, he's stupid, too. I mean... Anybody with an IQ above 90 would have given a much better interview than he gave regarding his exploits with Jeffrey Epstein. Right, right. And there are other international leaders in the Black Book, correct? Yes. Ahud Barak is circled in the Black Book. But there's also the president of Spain, president of Argentina. There's a lot of powerful people in the Black Book outside the United States. Mm-hmm. I want to focus, if you wouldn't mind, on Les Wexner. Yes, that was my next one. Let's do it. Okay, so Les Wexner, he's the CEO of L Brands, which owns Victoria's Secret, Pink, Bath and Body Works, CO Bigelow, Abercrombie and Fitch. I mean, he's got a gigantic empire. It's estimated to be $6 billion right now. Okay, so Les Wexner. According to an article that I found, met Jeffrey Epstein in the 80s. We don't know exactly when, but we know that it's an Evening Standard article from January 22nd, 2001. And it has some very interesting stuff in it. It talks about Epstein meeting Wexner. And it also says Epstein has a license to carry a concealed weapon, once claimed to have worked for the CIA, although he now denies it. And then one journalist who the Evening Standard quoted said, he's Wexner's Mr. Fix-It. He has the spook connections and pulls the strings. So this was reported about Jeffrey Epstein in 2001. Now, he became Les Wexner's buddy in the 80s. and. What's really interesting, in 1991, Les Wexner gave him power of attorney 
over his entire empire. He signed a three-page legal document known as Power of Attorney that enabled Epstein to cut checks, hire people, sign checks, buy and sell properties, and borrow money. He gave Epstein the keys to his empire. And what's really interesting about that is in 2020, after this had gone down, Lexner wrote a letter to Elbrand employees vowing that he was never aware of the illegal activity charged in Epstein's latest indictment. Well, I mean, that's total bullshit because after Palm Beach police arrested Epstein for multiple counts of child abuse in 2006, Wexner ostensibly severed his connections 18 months after the fact. But despite their purported 2007 rupture, one of Exner's charitable foundations received a $56 million infusion from a trust linked to Mr. Epstein in 2011. Wexner also claims that he discovered Epstein embezzled, quote unquote, vast sums of money from him in 2007, but he never notified the authorities. So here we have someone that's wealthy. And what's interesting I got a hold of a 1999 Columbus, Ohio police report, and it was about an attorney named Arthur Shapiro who was assassinated gangland style in broad daylight in Columbus, Ohio. A gunman came up to him and put two bullets in the back of his head. Now, that police report discussed persons of interest, and Shapiro was an attorney for the law firm that handed a lot of the limited's legal work. And of course, that's Wexner's baby, the limited, all Abercrombie, Finch, Victoria's Secret, all those companies. And this police report said that Wexner was a person of interest in this homicide. And it also said that he had connections to organized crime, specifically the Genovese crime family. So what's kind of interesting about this is the chief of the Columbus police ordered the report to be destroyed, (laughs) but Hmm. it wasn't destroyed because I ended up getting a copy of it. And it talks about Frank Walsh of Walsh Trucking moved like 90% of the limited's merchandise. And then there was an article I came by in Women's Wear Daily that discussed that how close Wexner and Walsh trucking was and that Walsh, in fact, moved 90% of the limited's merchandise. And then from the Bergen County record, I found a 6-9-1996 article that said Walsh, described as an associate of the Genovese crime family by a federal investigator, also pleaded guilty to two counts of mail fraud for falsifying loan applications that netted him $3 million in bank loans. So here we have Les Wexner and he's got a conduit right to the Genovese family with Frank Walsh. What's really fascinating about that is, and when I talked about this earlier is, I mean, I'm extrapolating this, but if Epstein and Wexner met in the 80s, and then in 1991, Wexner gives Epstein complete power of attorney over his entire empire. I mean, he gave Epstein the keys to the kingdom. I mean, why would he do that? He is known as a shrewd businessman. Why would he give a guy keys to his kingdom that he's known for maybe five years? And then we also find out that he has all these connections to organized crime. So 
there's no way that Epstein as a college dropout from Coney Island could have blackmailed like Wexner. I mean, there's just no way. The only way Epstein could have blackmailed powerful men and people like Wexner and lived to tell the tale was if these power brokers were aware that Epstein had the backing of a powerful group or entity. And according to Vicki Ward's article, it was intelligence. According to Alexander Acosta, it was intelligence. Dang. Well, that's definitely a fascinating thread. The Les Wexner connection is probably one of the strongest and one of the ones that kind of speaks to having access to a lot of young, beautiful women. Yes. I mean, there's also that. But Epstein was getting women. He was in business with a model agency that was run by Luke Brunel, who's also a pedophile. And Epstein was getting girls through that modeling agency, in addition to the girls that had fallen through the cracks. And there's accounts out there that Epstein is buying, actually buying young girls in Eastern Europe. So Epstein was getting girls from a number of different places, not only girls that had fallen through the cracks and Miami, but through this modeling agency run by Luke Brunel. And if these accounts are true, then he was also buying girls. I mean, outright buying them in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's quite curious. And that is something that comes up in the speculation around child trafficking networks that the kids are being picked up and trafficked from third world countries like Haiti there are people who have tried to loop in other high-profile suicides to being related to this kind of thing. And let's talk about that petition a little more. I know you mentioned it, but it's also good to hit these things at the end of a show as well. And it is a change.org petition. What would you like to see from people that are listening right now? Well, what we need is signatures on that petition. I would like to talk to people that are connected to anti-trafficking organizations that have any kind of connections to anti-trafficking organizations, because I have a feeling that no one really wants to be the first one to commit to this. I think that they all know, the ones that are, aren't dirty, know what kind of miscarriage of justice this is. So I would really like to talk to them. And I think that once we start getting organizations that would want to be involved, I think that it could have a snowballing effect. I agree with you. Are there any groups that are worth mentioning that have been willing to partner on this? Not yet. No. None. Wow. I'm just trying to get them to sign the petition at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, such a basic thing. And of course, I do have to ask, I mean, with such a huge power structure. I mean, I signed the petition, but I'm also a bit cynical about it. It is one of those things like, what else can we do? Kind of like voting. It's good to vote, but it doesn't necessarily seem like it has that much integrity in the system. But is there anything to be said about a petition for people who are just maybe cynical about that working? What would you say to them? Sign anyway? Well, here's the thing. I'd like to go back to Dr. Seuss on this one. Horton hears a who. <laughs> there were a lot of who's that had to get together and make their voice known so the elephant Horton wouldn't step on them. And if we can get enough people together, 
we can change. If there's enough people that demonstrate in Washington, D.C. and other cities, we can get things to change. And here's the thing. Are you familiar with the Marc Dutroux scandal in Belgium? A little bit. It's a pretty dark one, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it was a lot like Franklin, but it was also like Epstein because it was right out there in their faces. And tens of thousands of Belgians, I mean, I've heard that it's up to 200,000 hit the streets in protest because this pedophile network that Dutroux was involved in was being covered up and they just hit the streets. If we cannot do that in the United States, I feel sorry for us. If we let William Barr cover up the molestation of scores of victims and scores of perpetrators, and we do nothing, I mean, I just can't conceive that. That's why I'm involved in this. We have to have a response. We cannot let the government and William Barr cover this up. We have to hit the streets like the Belgians. If we don't mount a response like the Belgians and at least hit the streets, I really feel sorry for us. I really feel sorry for this country if it cannot do the right thing here. I agree. I agree. And it was a little easier to hit the streets when we booked this. And I'm hopeful that it will be easier to hit the streets again in the future. But we are in a window where I guess that's just not possible. And that is curious and unfortunate. Well, we had some good momentum going with this. And then all of a sudden, the brakes just got put on. So yes, that's truly unfortunate what's happening now because we had momentum. People were signing the petition. I was slated to meet with some anti-trafficking groups. And now everything is just on hold because of the coronavirus. Yes. But while people are sitting at home, you're right there, sign that petition and Hopefully we can take this up a level when uh, the dust clears. Well, here's the thing. You have an opportunity to at least register some protest about the government allowing for the molestation of scores of girls and not doing anything. In fact, covering up the molestation. You can just put your signature down and register your disgust by that. It's just something that hopefully one's conscience would drive them to do is just simply write their signature on a petition that basically is trying to open up a cover-up of a bunch of child molesters. Right. Because these guys, they're rich, but they're ultimately child molesters. I mean, they're all child molesters. And we cannot let the fact that they might have power, they might have wealth, deter us from seeking justice because the bottom line is they're child molesters. It's true. It's just that simple. And if the internet can muster up 100,000 signatures to recut a Star Wars movie, it would be sad that we couldn't get that many for something so serious. Yes. Mm. And I've seen that. I mean, like the I saw the Kobe Bryant petition get thousands and thousands of signatures. Well, we were working very hard to get, you know, a thousand. So it's kind of unfortunate. I mean, but that's where Americans are at now. But they just have to take a step back and 
seek justice on this. If we cannot do that, if we cannot seek justice, as, and, and everyone knows that Jeffrey Epstein pandered these young girls to power brokers. I mean, just about everybody knows that. And mm-hmm. if we cannot get justice for these victims, I really feel sad for America. As will I. And there are tens of thousands of people hearing your voice and mine right now. I am hopeful that at least a good several thousand will put their names on that petition. I mean, what are we doing here? If you can listen about it, if you're interested enough to hear us talk for an hour or two, it's five minutes to write your name on that petition. And that will potentially, when this all blows over, the coronavirus thing, it will give at least alternative media something to cover when it comes to Epstein. They might want to cover it. They might feel that they covered everything. But if there's a petition out there with 100,000 signatures, that gives them something to report on. You know what I'm saying? Not only that, but the more people we get involved, the more people can show up at a demonstration and we can speak as one. We can be a lot of who's and hopefully Horton will hear us. William Barr is very dirty. And like I said earlier, he covered up the Franklin Trafficking Network. Now he's working on covering up the Epstein Trafficking Network. But he's done a number of dirty things in the interim between covering up these two trafficking networks. So a guy like William Barr shouldn't even be in government, really. He should not be our attorney. He should not be the highest law enforcement officer in the United States of America, someone with his track record. It's true. It's mind-boggling how it happens sometimes. But, hey, I'm happy to lend this platform to such a serious issue when I can. When you finish that next project, I'd love to talk to you about that. If you talk to any victims in this saga who feel as if they're not heard and want to tell their story, I am open to it. But Nick, it is always a pleasure. I do appreciate what you do. Really noble of you to keep pursuing this thing. And your passion is contagious. You've crafted one hell of a legacy. And I hope we can add some names to that petition and get these people the justice they deserve because they've been put through the ringer. Thank you, Greg. It's great talking to you again. You got it. Thanks for your time. Keep fighting the good fight out there. Okay, man. Whoop, there it is, guys. Mm. Rolling out the red carpet today for one of the greats in this world. I've got so much respect for Nick, his dedication to justice, and his rigorous journalism. He's pretty unmatched, actually, in this pedophile network exposure space. In fact, we use the Franklin scandal as an example of a child trafficking network embedded in the system all the time. It's pretty much Exhibit A. And we'd know a lot less about it if it wasn't for Nick's work. And no doubt, it was very risky work to do, and he deserves all the praise and attention we can throw at him, in my mind. So it's been really great to see him sort of reemerge so aggressively on the Epstein situation. And I already know we're going to have some comments that say, gee, a change.org petition? That's our solution? And my rebuttal would be, well, What are you doing that is better than that? Believe me, I'm a little skeptical, but like I tried to point out in the show, it's about volume. Like, let's be positive. When numbers cross certain thresholds, they're pretty hard to ignore. And at a minimum, you'll see journalists writing about the petition if it has enough support. 
I'm sure everyone has their own ideas on how to get justice, but in situations like this, it's best to have a leader, a tip of the spear, so to speak, and a very clear, defined goal. Organization is important. And in this case, I think Nick has earned our trust and support. He's taught us a lot about these networks. And in response, I think we should repay him by fulfilling his call to action, despite any cynicism out there. I don't see a better option within our collective means for getting the Epstein network back into the conversation. We're really going to have to elbow our way in there, given how much air this virus has taken up. So sure, it might be unlikely, but the system is trying to shut this out. So any attempt to reignite this fire is a bit of a long shot right out of the gate. And it's tough to get large groups of people to do anything because we think, oh, he's not talking to me. Other people are going to do it, so I don't have to do anything. But I am asking that the tens of thousands of listeners that we have sign this petition and share it around. I hope we can show Nick that THC is worth his time and that he's talking to an audience that cares. As he mentioned, he has a hard time getting advocacy groups to get on board with this. So let's show them what kind of people we are. So please click that link in the show notes or check my social media and let's make it happen. It's kind of hard to avoid on podcasts like this, but I don't think we have that many calls to action around here, honestly, especially ones that are so easy. And in this case, I do care more about you signing that petition than I do you sharing this interview even. Both would be nice, but I'm going to bend the knee to Nick on this one. And I'm going to take his lead because it just seems like the minimum we could do to show just how disgusted we are with the injustice here. I will say I have seen a decent amount of posts highlighting the civil unrest around the world and the protests going on in several pockets of the planet right before this nearly worldwide ban on leaving your house. And that's compelling. But I'm sure it was just a happy accident for the big machine, and it's likely that this was going to roll out either way. It's also funny that when you look at the presidential election, pretty much the only thing Bernie and Trump have in common is the passion of their supporters and the massive crowds that they can gather. Meanwhile, the establishment creeper Joe Biden can't seem to attract any crowds, so it's easier to jam him down America's throat at a time when we're not allowed to gather into crowds at all. So, another happy accident. We're in pretty strange times, but this virus story is not the only thing going on in the world, and we should pay a lot of attention to the surrounding context and also bring back some space in the cultural conversation for stuff like this before it gets swept under the rug entirely. I also appreciate Nick's discipline to not speculate too greatly on some of the things I asked. I mean, how could I not ask? But at the same time, I'm willing to accept a, I don't know for sure. Kind of relates back to what Richard Dolan said about being aware of his position, and he has to be very careful what he endorses. He doesn't want to discredit himself by getting too far out into speculative territory. And lucky for us, I don't have that problem. So 
I'll let it rip and we'll uh, see where it goes sometimes. But again, big thanks to Nick Bryant. It was a pleasure to talk to him again. And in higher side news, you might have noticed some small changes to the website. I know most people just listen through a podcast app or something and don't use the website. But if you do, you might have noticed that it's a little different looking. And most of the work was done on the infrastructure or the architecture of THC and THC Plus under the hood where you wouldn't notice it because we did try to keep the design mainly the same. I think people have gone through enough change with THC in the past year. But those listeners who do know a little bit about development and marketing companies probably understand that when the company I was working with sort of screwed us last August, all the work they did on the site was custom code, which makes it really hard to work with after you fire them. Well, I do have a talented and trustworthy IT guy now who's done the hard work of basically cloning the look of the site, but building it in a much more modern and customizable open environment. Also, I think some of the recurring problems we've had with some people's plus accounts here and there that we haven't been able to figure out, they tend to relate to this custom code and just all of the plugins and bloated, outdated add-ons I've used over the last 10 years of managing all this myself. So my man cleaned out all that old stuff, updated everything, and now the subscription management software system and the podcast delivery system that I use, which are supposed to work together, now they actually can work together without a bunch of unnecessary custom code shoehorned in there. I know some people experienced a new issue as a result of the switch, and that's just because I've made so many manual changes to the database that when you clone a database like that, some of the manual fixes don't translate. But if you're having any issue at all, just fill out a support ticket and me and my guy will get back to you. Right now, it's all cleared out and I've taken care of everyone. So if you are a Plus member who for some reason has seen the free show, it's not the site, it's not systemic, it's an isolated problem and I can fix it for you, but I have to know about it first. But I'm breathing easy. This is a huge, huge relief. And I'm finally out from under the influence of that company that shall not be named entirely. Remember how a good chunk of plus shows were put on the free feed and then the free feed was taken off iTunes for a while? I mean, they screwed me about as bad as they could. And I got almost no money back. But we have made it to the promised land, and now we can start adding features and making things as nice and easy to use as possible. But you do kind of have to rebuild from the ground up to do that. So we're here now. If there are website features you'd like to see, I'm open to them. Probably best to use the support ticket system for that too, rather than emailing me directly. But we'll put it on the list. As for the joint session this month, usually they're always on the 20th or the 25th of the month, but this time it's 4.20 versus a Saturday night. So we're going to split the difference and do this one on April 22nd. Mark your calendars and grab the link from the front page of thehiresidechats.com. I also have to say thanks to you guys because we've seen a huge uptick in plus members. Granted, I've been a bit more active. We pumped out a few good shows in a row. Plus members also got that two-hour video chat with Gordon, and I've recently been on other shows, which probably helped as well. 
I also gave out that seven-day free trial on Facebook and Twitter. Can't discount that either. But long story short, I know a lot of people out there are worried about their economic situation and all this. So to sign up now means a lot to me. And I am also so much better positioned than a lot of people that I know. But it doesn't mean that I'm also not a bit worried. So it's meant a lot to see those subscriptions go up and my stress level go down. It's made it a lot easier to go to work, so to speak. I appreciate you guys so much. I hope that's obvious. It's not often we have a big operation hit us like this, and I didn't have shows prepared for it. But I hope you're impressed with the ones we did scramble together. And of course, we're not done yet. We're going to have a mix of related and unrelated topics, and I think that's the way to do it. If you feel like the news is moving quickly and you're wondering where my head's at, my endorsement of John Rappaport at No More Fake News still stands. Del Bigtree is also doing great coverage on the high wire. And even though I can't seem to land an interview with Rappaport right now, some listeners have pointed out just how relevant his last THC appearance actually is. And that was when I talked to him during the Ebola situation, and there are a lot of parallels now, so maybe check that out if you're interested. The website now has a section of new shows and a section of popular shows, so you can actually see which ones are being brought back up to the surface because of the climate out there. And this John Rappaport episode is one. Clive DeCarl is also another one that I've noticed sliding through there on the slider. So it's just another nice feature that we have on the website. And lastly, when it comes to this episode, in the second hour, we talked about Nick's thoughts on Pizzagate, Jerry Sandusky, and suicides that have been speculated to relate to child trafficking. We got Nick's thoughts on how far back these networks really go, special prosecutors and their power over a grand jury, how this injustice works in the courtroom some strategies for seeking justice, and a little bit on Epstein's properties and some of the things that were found. Sign up for Plus if you want to hear more from Nick Bryant and all the great guests around here. I promise you're going to like it. TheHiresideChats.com But with that, I'm getting out of here. We'll get through all this stuff and hopefully be stronger for it and more prepared next time, right guys? Anyway, please sign Nick's petition. Much love. I've done my part. Your move, Epstein Justice Stoppers, Criminal Network Cover-Uppers, and Injustices of the So-Called Justice System. Your fucking move. Well, they tie that yellow ribbon round the oak tree. They've worn out all the prayer in their hearts. All along thought they were rooting for the home team as they're sent to the game and torn apart. See
Smoking gun.